Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security. I'm here, as always, with Zhao, and we're going to talk about DevOps today. How are you doing? All good, Jay. Thanks for having me. And yeah, we're going to look at DevOps today. I realized we had gone through some concepts that directly or indirectly touch on DevOps that we never actually went through the, the methodology and how to yep. how it relates to everything. So I think it should uh, should be a good topic for today. I think so too. It, it's a foundational thing, like you were saying, because yeah. um, it's not a direct security topic, but it also is because security is a big part of DevOps as it is everything. But there's gonna be other things that we're going to talk about, which is going to require that we've had a discussion about DevOps. So we have a, a episode to point people back to. And that's what it is today. And uh, DevOps is one of those inescapable things when it comes to IT, like that it just comes up. It's a good thing. And, um, yeah. you know, I've done it, which we'll get into. Um, so, it, yeah, should be a great podcast. Yeah, it's basically, well, we can't exactly say that it's something new. It's been around for, what, uh, since 2013, 2012 was when the concept started floating around. Yeah, that's and, when I first heard of it. Yeah, and it's basically just a different way of looking at uh, operations and development and how to get the best of both worlds. So how would you describe DevOps if you were to define it? <laughs> That's a hard um, one, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's a very hard one. Everybody has a, has a definition for it and nobody agrees exactly on all the, the little details of the sync. But basically it's, basically, it's a way to offload some of the tasks from operations into developers. And the reason this is important is because previous to DevOps, the development cycle, let's suppose you have a company that has 10 or 12 in-house developers that they're building some tools that are used inside that company. Um, they would code, they would develop new releases, they would then have to send the, the builds to the operations teams, which would then have to deploy them on the servers and then something came up because it always does they would have to go back to the developers and this back and forth it takes a long time and it was slowing down the development cycle and it was dragging down on the operations because it was just they were only doing this instead of doing other things so yeah people realized there there had to be a better way to do things and that's where the the concept for devops appeared and where it came from it's basically a methodology for for development and operations in modern IT. Yep, that's a good one. So um, I'll give a little bit of background in my experience um, in because I've done this before. And that'll also, I think, help. Um, it'll piggyback off your description um, with a real world uh, scenario. So I um, is actually my first Linux job ever. Um, I've been using Linux since 2003, but you know I was doing Windows admin. That's what I, where I started um, life, basically. And this job came up, a Linux system administrator. I applied for it, got it, which was really great. Started working for the company. Started hearing about DevOps. The word was um, starting to come around. And um, basically what the company was looking for, they were a, um, I want to say 10 or 12 developers and very, very smart people, really awesome people. And they were developing a GPS solution, which was very complicated. And so they were doing their thing. And before I started, they would have um, one of the 
developers be elected as that week's IT person to build servers and um, provision things and m- maybe write automation code or whatever. Um, so that person would have to stop doing their day job or their normal job and do this other thing. And then they just pass that baton around. And um, needless to say, it was very distracting because, um, you know, they're developers and, and each one of them were very talented Linux people in general because they just knew Linux backwards and forwards, but they were they became developers. That's that's where they transitioned into and, and where their interests were. And they didn't want to be stopping their projects of what they're working on to go do the IT thing or the server build thing. So they wanted someone to come in and uh, be that person for them. And that person ended up being me. So my job title was Linux System Administrator. And then the um, buzzword DevOps started to float around. And um, I remember asking my manager, I'm like, yeah, did you, have you heard of uh, DevOps? Like, What's your opinion on that? He says, uh, "Yeah, that's what you're. That's what you're doing right right now. Actually, that's that's what you're doing." <laughs> like, um, and I'm like, "Oh, really?" He's like, "Yeah, that DevOps. That's that's exactly what you're doing." Um, so basically, what my job looked like is we had um, it was a Debian shop mostly. There's a couple other distros there, um, but they would need a server built for a test or compiling something or you know as some part of the um, overall process. I helped manage their file server and backups and networking and pretty much all of that software defined networking and regular networking. And, and I was the go-to like, I, like I would be in the meeting in the morning, they would talk about what phase of development is in. And they would uh, correlate that to what my action items were to support them and give them what they need to get that done. And um, it was a ton of fun because I felt like um, I felt very appreciated, and I was because every single one of these people they very much appreciated me because they didn't have to stop being the developer; they could just continue doing their job, and I would take that um, those tasks off their plate. So um, it was a really good experience. And I know DevOps; there's variations of this, like you were yeah. saying. I mean, it's hard to explain because if you ask ten different people what DevOps is, I think you'll get ten different answers. But yeah. what's consistent is infrastructure as code. Um, building infrastructure for, you know, to support the development team. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, they put other things on your plate as well that may or may not be related, but that's how it goes. Yeah. Um, There is one, basically DevOps came along. It was like the the perfect storm. You had containerization coming up. You had strong virtualization background on lots of sysadmins at the time. Automation was taking off. Um, developers were working on faster cycles when we were doing agile or something like that. So they had this two-week period where they would do development and then produce a build, and then they went to that building, going out in production and getting it in the hands of customers and all that. Um, so basically, it was the perfect storm. You had all the ingredients for a, a shift in how things are done. IT traditionally has this this very big issue. It's very quick at adopting new technologies, but it's very slow at changing processes. And DevOps came along and DevOps made, made the change the mindset, basically. So some of the tasks that were traditionally done by sysadmins, like preparing systems, like you just mentioned and all that, could now be offloaded to the developers by using, for example, Docker files. So mm-hmm. the developer could explain could write exactly what he wanted to be on the the system, and then Docker would provide that. Um, Specific versions, specific modules for Apache, for example, or for Nginx or whatever. 
and they had a way to actually get immediately whatever they needed. They didn't have to to pass that stuff along for the sysadmin and then wait a few days or a few weeks to have that deployed and then do the testing and then it didn't work, they needed something else. So it lets developers have, be more agile at what they do, be quicker on their turnaround and produce results faster. Yep. Um, but um, again, this this is standing on the shoulders of giants. The, the way automation is used in DevOps and the way that containerization is used in DevOps it's basically having all those things being created through code rather than through human interaction, basically. Yep. If you want to go to a more sinister route here, it's the machine doing more stuff simply through the code rather than human intervention. Yep, and there's, um, I feel like with, with DevOps, the individual technologies stack really well because you know when I started, um, you know probably the same for you too. But it's like there was none. There was none of this, right? So we yeah. get a server in the door. Um, we we rack it, yeah. run it for a couple of weeks, just make sure it's not going to fall over. There's no hardware instability or what or whatnot. Um, you know, getting the server in the door could take months. We get it in the door. We provision it. We install the OS manually. Um, you know, maybe Norton Ghost or Clonezilla or something might be used to automate at least part of that. But that's just an image thing, not automation. And um, it took it took a long time, and it was very manual. And then yeah, yeah. when um, Puppet came around, I don't I don't even know if that's the first. It's just the first I've heard of when it comes to automation that allowed infrastructure as code. Like, what is the end result that you mm -hmm. want to achieve? And you write the code to get your systems from where it is today to its end result with um, no human interaction, like you were saying. And that's the goal: of the automation. Yeah. So basically, there the the role of the sysadmin changes, like you just yep. said. You're no longer deploying the system and installing everything and getting it ready and then accepting the the builds from the developers and deploying them yourself as a sysadmin on that system. You prepare a basic system. You deploy a containerization system there, for example, Docker DE or whatever, and you give the developers access to it. And then them from the developers themselves from their workstations, they can just say, okay, I need the new container running this, this, and that, and it happens. It's like magic. Yep. And that's the, again, that's the real magic behind DevOps. Um, it eliminates a lot of the waiting time there. It, uh, it yep. facilitates things, it makes things happen faster. And along came the cloud and it, this just exploded because now you don't even have to deploy that on premises you can just get another cloud instance somewhere and the same technology the same stack applies there you just you're just running containers in a different place yep. but all of that comes from this different approach and this different uh, way to look at uh, at systems and new servers and all that that shifted from a traditional point of view to this devops mentality and this makes him, this was the biggest evolution in the past few years. It really this is, was, yeah. This was, this was probably bigger than the cloud itself, this, this new approach to, to computing, because it, it uses the cloud, it exploits the cloud in a way that uh, basically no other methodology or no other way it does. Um, and yeah, this might be a very wild assumption, but anyway. Um, you're, you're running your own company with a DevOps mindset and a few servers in the cloud or a cloud provider or something somewhere. Yep. You basically need less people, the job gets done the same and everything is automated and your developers are happy, which is something that traditionally doesn't happen because they, 
they are always annoyed that this is that means that they never do their job properly right yeah i'm sure you experienced that as well all of it all of it. yeah <laughs> so some of the challenges i guess it might be a good idea to talk about some of the challenges that i yeah. went through before the devops movement and to some extent after because you know not everyone develop or adopts it all the way but let's just say you have a team of uh, system administrators and they build servers they build linux servers and what a challenge has, has often been for me and the companies I've worked for is um, depending on who built the system, things are in different places, right? So you might have a this one person use a certain naming scheme for mounting storage. This other person uses a different naming scheme for mounting storage or the folder names or whatnot. And, you know, so you'll find yourself using the history command in bash quite a bit because you can find out what the previous person did pretty easily by looking at the bash history, which is like a, especially if you're starting an, at a company brand new to the company, like the bash history is just a gold mine of like <laughs> every command that was previously run as long as they didn't clear it. Um, but everyone would do, would do things different ways. So when I'm fixing a server, it's like, okay, where's the extra storage directory? Uh, where's this, <laughs> where's that? I don't know. I have to look for everything because there's no consistency there. Uh, worse, it's like, oh, we need a virtual machine for this uh, endeavor. Um, let's submit a ticket, and I, I think it'll get turned around in a week. We'll probably, um, maybe a week and a half we'll, if there's some back and forth, but we'll just submit the ticket to the IT team or system administrator team or whatever and have them build the VM. Then they'll get back to us when it's done. We can't do anything until then. We're just going to freeze everything until we get that VM because there's a, pro a process for building things that's got to go through the proper channels and whatnot. And that could take some time. So that slows things down. So that's another problem. Um, and those are just two off the top of my head. And there's so many more issues that um, this tries to solve. There is one that uh, always drove me nuts is when you get to a developer, they ask for a specific system. Again, not using DevOps, um, using traditional approach. And OK, I need a web server that has these specific versions of this component and that component and all that. And this is working fine in my machine. If you deploy that, those exact versions, it will work on the server. Mm -hmm. And then it never does, no. either because they got the, the bitness wrong, it's not 32 bits to 64, or because it's the different language, or because of some other crazy things that can interfere with this. And DevOps brought standardization to this. If they deploy a container on their machine and the container is running, you simply take the Docker file that, that uh, describes that container and you run it on the server and it's exactly the same. You you avoid the much of this complication of this yeah. of this complexity and it immediately solves those issues. And those are the ones that will leave a sysadmin scratching their heads because the sysadmin on their end, they deployed everything that the, the developer asked for and it's not working. And right. then they'll have to spend hours debugging that and the developer will keep annoying you. Oh, this is working, it's your fault. And now it's yours, right. the, the requirements are not right. And this back and forth, again, this drags the whole process. This makes everything go slower. And DevOps fixes this. It completely avoids these type of situations. Yep, it really does. So to break it down a little bit more, um, each individual component, um, because I mentioned that the uh, technologies in DevOps stack really well. I think that's kind of like the secret sauce here. Um, so you have the platform first, wh which is where your servers are. And for me, we, at the DevOps job I had, we were um, running virtual machines. We were looking into 
um, you know, containerizing later on. That was a goal. It was never achieved, unfortunately, because the corporate ownership of the company pulled the plug on our company. So unfortunately, we had to shut our doors. Um, but I feel like we would have totally made it to containerization. But I just wanted to mention that because it's not containers are going to be very common, probably the most common but you can still apply the DevOps mentality to virtual machines if that's what you run, if you yeah, haven't yeah. containerized things yet. So you have the platform. The platform could be OpenStack. It could be Docker. It could be Kubernetes, Google Cloud, AWS, DigitalOcean, whatever. It's the thing where your servers are running or where, where your servers are running, where your infrastructure is. And you have a team of developers that are developing a product or some code, the writing code. And... They run the code on the platform, and you as the DevOps person will um, help create the code, automate it. If it's still using virtual machines, maybe you'll spin those up or automate that too because you automate all the things. And when, you, when it comes to automation, um, this is the beauty of it. It's just so organic and so great how well this works. So you have infrastructure as code, which we've discussed which is an automation solution. It could be Puppet. It could be SaltStack. It could be Ansible, um, Chef. There's a number of these. Yep. And that defines getting the software installed and, and everything in the right place and removes human error because there's no human error because it's automated. Um, there's no variance here. It's mm -hmm. always the same. But going a level underneath that... Um, how do you build the containers or how do you build the servers? Like you, you know, you have the automation for installing everything, but you have to have something to install the stuff onto. You need a server, you need a container, you need something to run it. And that then you have a technology, for example, Terraform, right? Because Terraform mm -hmm. can make servers exist. It can automate the creation of virtual machines. It can automate the creation of containers and all these different things. So you could say this needs a four gig uh, virtual machine with two cores or a Docker container with these specific constraints, you define that. So now you have something to um, install your software on. But if you go a level underneath that, um, especially if you're talking about virtual machines, I mean, the last thing you want to do is install the Linux distribution from scratch every single time, right? You don't want to do that. So then there's a, technologies like Packer, for example, that automate the creation of the images that are used. So basically you can automate every level, like Packer mm -hmm. creates the image, Terraform grabs the image, makes the servers exist, and then your Ansible, Chef, Puppet, whatever it is, grabs that server, makes it into a web server, database server, app server, whatever its intended target is. Um, and it's just so beautiful when you see everything get created from like the bottom layer moving all the way up to the top. Absolutely. And this ties into something you said before. Um, it's interesting, the, the concept of a desired state. Rather than installing from scratch and starting to configure it, you begin with how you want the server to look like, what you need in the server. And then all of those tools, they will work together to get the system to that description that you give them, that desired state that you want it to be in. And this changes things. Uh, all the way around, basically. So you're no longer deploying individual applications. You're no longer deploying individual configuration changes. You just pass along the desired state that you want the system to have, or the container, or whatever. And then mm -hmm. those tools will work together to achieve that. And like you said, that that gets you standardization. That avoids the, the variance. That avoids, like you said, the, the differences from one person deploying to another person deploying a system. Yep. And it really helps when you, when you make that shift. And I know this isn't easy. I, I struggle with the transition from one mentality to the other as well. Um, 
when you go from one mindset to the next one, it, this, it takes some effort to, to get there because you're used to doing things in one way. You're used to deploying your servers and tweaking them to no end and getting all, everything out of them. To avoiding all that, you basically no longer touch the systems at any point of the process. You just right. ask them, okay, give me a system with these characteristics, with this memory, with this hard disk space and all that. And it happens. You wait a few seconds and you have the system like that. It deploys the images, it pulls it from somewhere. And yeah, it really makes life easier if you work with yes. that approach rather than the other one. It's an actual improvement. It's across the board. It just is transformative because, yeah, it does require a different mindset, context switching. But once you get there, it's like, I would have been doing all of that manually and that would have taken a lot more time. And everything is better. And now that things take less time, you can be more creative. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, if you have a really great idea, oh, this will really help the company if I, implement, if I implement this. I don't have time to do that because I got to build all these servers manually. Well, now mm -hmm. I do because I, I don't have to do that manually now. And it's such an improvement over the course of the entire company because, you know, that time that you save, um, you know, there's this um, saying like, you don't want to automate yourself out of a job. And that's totally not true because... <laughs> You're automating yourself into more of a job because you can use your time to do more with it than you could previously, which means you're going to have more bragging rights at the end of the year about all the things that you've accomplished that you've actually had time to do. Absolutely. And it also helps with another small detail that we've mentioned on previous episodes of the podcast. Um, we always talk about setting up a testing environment. Guess what? Yep. Using this type of technology, you just get it. It's basically for free. You have a production deployment and you just copy the files. Okay, now give me this, but on a lab environment, on a different network, let's define a new network and let's deploy these new containers on that network. And that's your testing environment. And it's exactly the same as the production one. And yep. again, that makes life really easy. Um, for all the people out there that have always struggled to getting a testing deployment, to have a lab, to try new, new software, to try new software tweaks or whatever this is a game changer again um it really makes life easier like i said before um, yep. it's the type of thing that you really should be playing with if you're not doing it at work yet you probably try it in your home lab try to see how it happens mm -hmm. get how try to understand the um, i don't know the the new approach to the process try to get your head wrapped around that and yeah it, you'll see the the benefits really fast yeah. And also, at least in my case, you might find yourself using the tools in places you didn't think you would, um, because it's not just the stack. There's other areas that the same tools can um, benefit. So the company I, I was referring to earlier, which is going to probably continue to be a really good example here, um, they were Debian on everything. Debian, Debian, Debian. Um, no judgment. I like Debian. Um, but the, the idea was, you know, the servers are running Debian. Everything is compiled there. So they would... Um, recommend everybody run Debian on their laptop or desktop as well, which they did. Um, but if someone wanted to use a different distribution, they could do that. But if it didn't compile, the first thing they're going to do is blame the fact that they're, they're not running Debian. So, and this was a problem because, you know, some people insisted on running Gen 2. We had two Gen 2 people out there, which was fun. Um, you know, an Ubuntu user, a couple Debian users, Mac users, and... Um, what I ended up doing there was I created a, a container, a Debian container that all the dev tools on it, 
everything that was you know tested at the versions that they're tested and i released this container to them so regardless of which os they're running and there's still variances with you know containers different operating systems i won't get into but for the most part they had this debian container had all the tools built in they could um it, you know pull the container down use it to develop things and um it didn't matter anymore if they're running Gen 2 or Arch Linux or whatever it is they're running, because they had this Debian container. If they could run a container, they could run the dev environment. And yeah, you could argue it may not be as fast, but um, it really worked for them and allowed them to use whatever OS they wanted. And they had this uh, development container that was the same for each person that was writing software. You mentioned that it wasn't as fast. It was about 2010, 2009 that we stopped worrying about performance. Yeah. Uh, basically, as an industry, we were always looking for more gigahertz and faster and right. faster systems. And around that time, we just stopped. We stopped worrying about uh, bragging numbers around speed because we would get more cores and all that. So that hides away some of that. You won't mm -hmm. notice the performance hit anyway. Yeah, I think one work. of the issues was Mac at the time, and this might be true now, and I think even Windows, although we didn't have any Windows users. Um, it's just like the implementation of Docker isn't quite the same on Mac as it is like on a Linux distribution, for example, because there's a different, there's like an emulation layer. I don't know if that's still the case now, but um, I know that that did introduce some bottlenecks there. But overall, it was a success. Like they were very happy that, oh, I could just run whatever, whatever I want. Okay, it's, as long as I have access to Docker, then I can run whatever OS I want. Doesn't matter, pull down the container. Um, and I can make changes to the container, then everybody can pull down the new version and get the changes in there. So if you notice a bug, we can fix it. Everybody benefits from it. Um, so that was a really good fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It really is. <laughs> and yep. for people who haven't tried it before, it's kind of hard to describe. But it uh, is, yeah. If you're doing things traditionally and you find yourself dealing with struggling with uh, version incompatibilities between different uh, applications or needing Take for example Java. If you need one Java version for doing for one application and you require a different Java version for another, and you're messing up with uh, with environment variables pointing to the Java binary for this and for that and for something else, look at containers. It's a pretty good solution for your problem, and it has uh, a smaller learning curve. It's not as steep as having to fix all the issues with different Java versions all over the place. Right. And it will get you the, the applications running, you'll find your solution, and you won't spend as long doing it. And I don't know, you, just talking about Java version brings Tomcat, which was another oh, thing boy. that I spent a long time trying to fix issues on. Um, yes. Yeah. And it was supposed to be easier and more compatible and all that, but it never was. It, there were always dependency issues and things that you had to fix. And now you can just get everything inside of one container and that solves the problem. That deploys the application and everything runs smoothly. Yep. And it, it helps with the works on my machine argument too, because, um, yeah, yeah. you know, that I hate that argument so much because it's like, <laughs> okay, great. Congratulations, it works well on your machine. It doesn't on mine. So clearly there is something missing here. Um, it should be the same, uh, you know, no matter what. Um, containers, you, you know, you have everything packaged into, well, a container. Everything you need is there. The versions, the config files, everything you need is in that. Um, it's almost like this big box. You just stuff everything in it. That's all the things that are required and um, blast versions of things and whatnot. And then you have this thing you can deploy that is, um, as long as you do it right, not going to run differently depending on what 
the underlying OS is, it's going to be the same for every person running it. And that's what you want, because anytime that argument starts, well, it worked on my machine, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> I don't want to have Great. that. Happen. Send me your machine and let me test it there. Yeah. Just mail it right <laughs> over. <laughs> can I virtualize your machine? Can I just get yeah. an image of the hard drive and, and throw it in the in the? I'll just wreck it downstairs on the data center. Um, and this uh, and DevOps also works with uh, with another issue that uh, IT teams sometimes have. Um, sysadmins traditionally did not want the devs to touch their systems and change settings on their own and do their changes, and the devs didn't want the sysadmins to mock around on the code and find issues and pointing them out and all that. And this neatly separates things. So yep. the sysadmins prepared the platform, the developers deployed their containers there, and this, again, this completely sidesteps the problem. It doesn't fix the problem. The, there will always be silo problems and communication issues between different teams, but it no longer matters for getting the work done. The work gets done regardless if there are issues or not around that. And yep. yeah, it's another of the advantages of around DevOps. So the way that it, um, just to kind of, one of those scenarios that it, it could play out as, just to kind of paint the overall picture, you have a uh, team of developers that are developing an app, and let's just say they have it in a container, it's working fine, um, but now they, they're doing a version 2.0, there's some new features they want to implement. So they have their, traditionally, and usually they'll have like a testing stack, they could just spin up a server or a container, you know, mm -hmm. destroy it, build it, destroy it, build it, destroy it. So as they're going through their code and code reviews, adding code and adding the features, testing it out. They test it out and they could be testing it on a, on a Docker container on their own machine. And once it's working, they, they do their code review. Eventually everybody on the team, yep, that's it's good. Uh, we've tested it, uh, it, it's ready to go. So then at that point, that container um, template or Docker file container image in a repository, whatever it is, that's the final step. They can either run it on production if they approve it to be that, and if they have access to production, but if they don't, then they could ship that container to the system administration team, like it's blessed, this is the container, this is the day we want it to be released on, and it's ready to go. So then they could schedule that implementation. Um, and it just gives you this ability to where they're not like, asking the system administrator over and over again, like, I want I want a VM. Okay, thank you for the VM. Um, I think I need one more gig of RAM because it's not quite working. I need, need another thread. Oh, I just maxed out the hard drive here. Can you add a little bit more space? And each one of these individual things could be a ticket that you have to submit and then wait for it to come back. But then if everyone's developing against this environment, they could themselves get it right and then tell the administrator at the end of the day what they found is required to make this work. Give them the image, the requirements, and um, it just simplifies everything. And the imp the automation has um, effects beyond this too, because even after the product is out, a security vulnerability comes around, and oh, I have like a thousand containers, and we have to like update it, this package, and all of them. Oh boy, that's going to take a long time. Oh, it's automated. We just make the minimum version this patched version after we test it and roll that out. And now we don't have to touch all these servers or VMs or containers, whatever it is. And that allows you to get the security fixes out faster because it, it's part of your automation. I even at one point had a security playbook that was all the requirements in there with like comments on why it's required, what CVE it fixes. And all I had to do is just pop it in that file, deploy it. And it was, uh, it was great. 
and it also helps uh, beyond security it helps also on capacity planning yep. if your initial deployment is just for one server and the, the application is running fine but then you see that you have too many users and it's slowing everything down you just spin a few more containers with the same docker file with the same image and you get it behind the high availability say ha proxy or something like that and there you have it you just increase your capacity with minimal workarounds with minimal fuzz and basically the developers themselves can do that they don't even yep. have to worry to, to get in touch with the sysadmins um and yeah that's the the real magic behind this this approach to, behind automation itself, but uh, where you, when you consider it uh, within the scope of DevOps, that's the real magic. Yep. I can't stress this enough. It makes your life easier. It really makes it your does. life easier. It, it makes software deploys a lot easier in other ways too than just deploying the software because you could, have, you could be a shop where, let's say you get on average 100 downloads a day. I don't know, I'm just making up numbers here, which is fine, your servers can handle this. But when you release a new version of your product, then your needs just quadruple. Like everybody's got to get that new version. So now these uh, three containers, three servers, whatever it is you have, it's not enough. You need more. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to manually create more servers, although some do, because you're going to need more servers when the, your product really you know reaches a new version. But you're not going to need all those servers all the time. You just need some servers to handle the load that's going to come from early adopters. And one of the things that it allows you to do is auto scaling, like which is kind of like horizontal scaling. Let's just say you have three servers or three containers, and that's enough for you. They're they're maybe 20, 30% full or used up. Um, but when you release a new version, this, this is just going to max them out. You could have it detect where the CPUs are kind of having some trouble here. The, the resources are kind of starting to be constrained. And then it'll spin up another container and another one or another server, depending what you have, but probably a container, and then spin up more automatically to handle the load, to spread the load. Mm -hmm. And then when the load dies down, everybody's downloaded it, It's a week has passed, and it's okay, it's settled down. It'll just start deleting containers or servers back down to a minimum number, which could be three, and you could set a maximum number so you don't have like 10,000 containers in a <laughs> major bill. Um, you have to have a limit there, right? But you could set it to grow. Um, it's like elastic, which some cloud providers use that term elastic where it could just stretch everything out, just build some servers, remove servers to kind of organically have your infrastructure handle what's coming at it and um, automating the scaling of things too, which is um, something that can make software deployment a lot easier because you don't have to manually create a bunch of servers and be ready to hit the start button and adjust your load balancer and all these things at the right minute and DNS entries and all these things. You can have that automated, which will really help a lot. Yeah, and that's one of the great benefits of the cloud. It's uh, giving you the capacity to respond to those quick uh, spikes in demand. You just yep. spin another instance, you just spin another container, another VM, or as many as you need, basically. Um, and your infrastructure will handle it, your automation tools will handle it, and everything will just keep responding. And <laughs> knowing all this, it's amazing how some I won't name uh, game publishers, for example, still <laughs> won't do that properly when they launch new versions of uh, DLCs or expansion yes. packs or whatever. And you have these major queues and you have the issues on launch day and people are waiting hours to log in. 
but again, I won't mention no names to avoid the. Noise yeah, I, I, mean, I want to. I want to. <laughs> that. I mean, I'm. I play a lot of games. I'm more of an offline player myself. Um, but you know, online games, I've seen it time and time again where they just can't handle the load when people are buying it on release day, and it's like, how is that still a problem now? Because yeah, we exactly. have the tool to fix exactly. this. Like, how is that it? still an issue? Right. It makes no sense to me at all, and even um, and I, you know, I said I said we're not going to name names, but I'm about to. <laughs> um, you know, when anytime I hear like Apple is releasing new products, it's like their store's down, literally, it's down. They shut it down. It will be back soon, or I don't remember what it says. And then it comes back with a new version, and I'm thinking, do they have they ever heard of like Time to Live and like DNS flipping to another server <laughs> at the right time, like? Um, but I mean, there's probably more reasons than that, but I don't know of any other um, server or any other company that everything goes down and then it comes back up. Um, but that, I mean, we've solved these problems many, many, many times, um, especially yeah. with game companies. It makes no sense. Like, um, I can't remember what game it was lately. It was even in the news that um, they had a botched launch. Uh, one game in particular can't even be played at all right now. Um <laughs> Like after release, you can't play it. There's no way to play it. And they, they don't even know when they're going to have it fixed. It's like, I don't know. Maybe they need to watch my YouTube channel or something before they, <laughs> they roll some of these out. Yeah. Like you said, these are solved issues. They should no longer be an issue, especially at this level. At the level of the, these companies at this size, of this capacity, the, I mean, they had to know this was going, was going to happen, yep. and it's worth planning if they didn't. Uh, yeah, because it yeah. happens with every single expansion, it happens with every single new launch, and again, this is a, a non-issue. It's only happening because they don't take the, the necessary steps to, to actually correct it. Right. I've... But, um had situations is ha it does happen a lot uh, less often where a new piece of software comes out even a linux distribution comes out i remember earlier in my career when a new version of ubuntu came out i would make it a point to download it like a week later because i'd be like i'm not going to be able to get it downloaded like like uh, you know i would just end up using torrent which is better anyway but um literally it's just like i can't download it like i download it or i start it and then it just times out somewhere in the middle yeah. i can't get it down and then a week later when more people have successfully downloaded it, I'll go and I'll grab it then. And I don't run into that anymore. I know that's not quite the same thing because we have mirrors and whatnot. But, um, you know, software distribution, even though a lot of companies still kind of do it wrong, it's still a lot better because I could tell that I have this problem a lot less often nowadays, which is really great. Yeah, and something that also helps that is the, um, the CDNs, the content delivery networks. It also alleviates that problem by yep. local caching it at specific points in the network, it hides away some of that problem by spreading the load more and more. Yep. Um, and probably why you don't see that that issue happening today, basically. Um, yeah. Even so... on the other side, even on the other side of the fence on Windows updates, a few years ago when they launched the getting them on patch day, it was almost impossible. The download speeds would be atrocious, so yeah. you would wait hours for the two megabyte patch or something like that. So it wasn't an open source or a Linux specific problem or right. It, yeah. it was just a constraint of the of the network and the constraint of resources. But with this scaling that we have today, that no longer has to be an issue. And I feel like there's just so many topics that we've covered that 
Um, cause we're, we're covering the greater DevOps itself, but they're within it. I mean, we could have entire episodes dedicated mm -hmm. to automation, dedicated to containers, dedicated to load balancing. And every single thing that we mentioned is probably an episode of them by itself, but this is stuff that Absolutely. we have to talk about. But then there's also DevSecOps as well, which kind of brings us full circle into the security side of things. Mm -hmm. And um, that I think that's, that could even be something possibly that could be an episode, but um, at least we should probably talk about it in a nutshell, I think. Yeah, I really think we should spend an episode on DevSecOps. Um, yep. Again, it's another buzzword that, uh, that came a few years after DevOps. And it's basically integrating security concerns into the DevOps pipeline. Um, yep. When you're building the images, the, there should be some concern into how secure are the images that you're pulling. Have they been tested? Have they been patched? Are you using the latest versions of whatever you're pulling? And DevSecOps touches into that. It has uh, mechanisms in place to check versions that you're pulling, to make sure that the, the, the images are signed, for example. And then at other stages, it's using tools that do static code analysis, looking for bugs when the developers are creating the code. Yep. It's uh, testing the, the applications on a secure environment before they go into production. And basically, it's automating all of these steps, not just the, the development and deployment and production phases and creation of the containers and all that, but uh, adding security layers and security checks that, that happen at points specific points in this process yep. and that's DevSecOps in a nutshell of course each of these specific operations we could talk about it in much greater detail but yep. probably today we won't have the time to get into that and we should get in a, in a later episode but um, yep. yeah it's another of the buzzwords around DevOps another thing I want to make sure people are aware that exists and it's part of it, part of what you were saying about DevSecOps is governance and there's entire solutions around this or you could just roll your own but essentially what it is is that you give your developers or DevOps or whatever your people access to spin up their own infrastructure and they will do that they will absolutely do that you give them that power they will do that and you also want to make sure that they don't do anything that you don't want them to do. So, for example, let's just say you have, um, I don't know, some data that you want to put in a VM or a container and test some things on, or a database server is probably a better example of this. And it's company policy, as it should be, not to make this publicly available at all. Like, you could just, like, LAN access is fine. You could just update your Etsy host file locally to kind of trick your system and develop or whatever it is you do, and you develop it locally. Um, but you don't want it publicly available because, you know, you haven't vetted the security yet. You haven't really done your due diligence there. Um, governance is kind of like um, having a way that checks what people are doing so that they don't make a database server publicly available, which is horrible. Um, but sometimes a cloud provider could have that as its default sometimes, where it's just at by default open to the internet. And, you know, then it, you could have a system in place that says, oh, well, hold on, hold on. Um, no, you can't do that. And this is this is why, and this is what's going to happen. And you could do it in a way where um, it lets them do whatever, but it just you know lets a manager know that something was made publicly available. They can bless it. Yes, I approve that. Or no, no, no. Or you could have it set up to automatically correct it. In the case of a cloud provider, you could have it set up to where they make a database container publicly available. And I think I'm going to use that example a lot. Um, it'll actually 
make it not publicly available as soon as they create it. It'll just go in after them and close the um, port or whatever from being accessed to the firewall. And because if you don't have a system in place to where you um, have, it's not that anyone wants to break rules on purpose. That's not what this is. Yeah, it's it there's so many things you got to pay attention to. And it, it, it really is helpful to have a system in place that will say, yeah, by the way, you can't have this publicly available unless mm -hmm. you have a blessing or whatever, and we'll freeze it, pause it, whatever for now, get the approval and whatever. So that way you don't have to worry that one of your people might accidentally make something publicly available and then you end up on the news for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> you definitely don't want that. You're, you're talking about leaky S3 buckets, I'm sure. Um... That's one of the things too. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's on the list. Uh, but uh, another important thing that uh, that is tested, and there are automated tests for this, is not including credentials into the Docker files or the configuration files that you're adding yeah. to the image. And there are tools that will check your deployments and make sure that they are not there, and they will warn you before before publicly before making it publicly available, because it's like pushing your passwords to to GitHub inside of your project. You should never do that, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and if at this point you're still wondering, but why won't I be able to, or should I be able to do it? Yeah, you shouldn't be able to do that. And if you're still wondering, maybe you shouldn't be doing sysadmin's job. Um, sure, at least reading up on some stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, what you mentioned is totally part of this. It's part of the DevSecOps uh, mindset. And, it's another set of rules and checks and balances, like you guys like to say in the US. It's yep. about validating what you're publicly making available, what you're uploading, what you're getting out there. And it's uh, how to get things done securely, basically. It's the, the whole goal. And all of the steps will be audited in some way or another yep. by hopefully automation tools and automated mechanisms, but if by nothing else, then somebody from the security team actually looking at the configurations that you're sending and looking at your settings and all that. And yeah, you don't want to be the guy that gets that database open somewhere. No, it is not. I've seen that play out a few times now um, and, and the people were it's not- It's always thrilled. on the news. Yeah, it is. I mean, there. I mean, in my case, I I've stopped my fair share of those before that happened, uh, thankfully. Um, but you know, it's like, yeah, everyone starts out somewhere. I get it, but you know, there there still has to be checks and balances. I think the only thing I hate more than API keys, or maybe not as much. It's it's debatable, but on that level, I hate um, you know when you have API keys that end up leaking out or being mm -hmm. thrown in Git or whatever. But um, the other thing I hate almost as much, if not more, is when someone makes the mistake of like emailing the private key to their SSL cert um, <laughs> and, and clear text over email uh, without any password or encryption or anything. And um, especially as a managed service provider, where I'm, you know, if I'm hosting for other people, it's like, yeah, I need you to send me your um, your certificate, right? Um, but then I've trained myself to say, I need you to securely send me, and they still probably won't. And I, I stress to them, don't send it in plain text over email. Um, and then they'll do it anyway. And it's like, you have just invalidated the SSL cert for your entire company. Um, you're literally going to have to roll out a new cert for everything now. Yep. Um, it's horrible, but but it happens. You know, it's, there's all these different things that you really shouldn't do that people learn the hard way. Yeah, absolutely. We'll look at PGP security for 
Yeah. If nothing else, just look at pretty good privacy and set up some security mails, uh, security mail client or something to, to send this type of information. Yep, absolutely. It it just got to just always err on the side of caution. That's that's um, I think the moral of the story altogether when it comes to security is there's no perfect security and and mistakes will be made for sure. But try to make it as possible and try not make try especially not to make the really big mistakes. Yeah, you shouldn't make life easier for the bad guys. Right. Yeah, and they will use it <laughs> if they <laughs> find it. They will use it for sure. Um, it, we could probably have a whole episode on what not to do, um, which is probably not a bad idea, actually. Like, like, yeah. just don't do these things, especially. Um, it's probably another one we'll probably need to do. So, I don't yeah. know. I tend to to be very preachy about this stuff, and people don't uh, don't like it very much. But yeah, over the years, you pick up lots and lots of things that you should never do, and right. getting those out there might help somebody. So yeah, yeah, it might be, be a good idea. idea. It might be a good idea. Yeah, so there we go. Live, uh, we're not live, but we're we're recording this and coming up with ideas for future shows, and you guys are hearing that play out uh, in yeah. real time. That's uh, pretty cool. But um, was there anything else you wanted to cover on DevOps? Because I, I feel like we will need to have some follow-up content on this. I don't want anyone to think Absolutely. like this is it for the DevOps, but... We barely scratched the surface. We just right. described some of the aspects of it, but uh, yeah, we'll probably revisit this uh, if not on the next one, then two episodes from now or something like that, we might come back to the same topic because yep. there's a lot of things to actually explore here. We might look at the, the actual tools that you use for this, give you some examples of how to do this. And just from the top of my head, if you guys want to, to try this and then to see how DevOps works in practice, um, take a look at uh, Open Nebula. It's um, a platform where you can spin up containers and VMs and do that basically automatically. Try setting one instance up for you and run some tests, see how it works out. Try giving access to somebody else so that there's more than one person accessing the system and you see how it plays out. And you'll see the, the levels of interaction that you can give somebody else, for example, a developer, and how you prepare the system for that developer to, to use it and to give him permission to spin up containers and take them down and all that. Yep, and uh, some cloud providers have like a free trial to get started out there. So you can just have a look around. There's a, there's a bunch of these. Yeah. Um, the only thing I'd say though, is make darn sure you delete everything when, when you're done trialing it or you will get a bill. Um, so you make sure you spin up a server, um, you could play around with it, learn. Make sure when you're done, you delete the server, delete the disk, delete the images, delete the snapshots, delete the DNS entry, whatever you've created. Just write down a list of the things you create as you create it so you know exactly what to destroy when you're done. Um, and it, you know you can go on one cloud provider, 30-day trial, learn, practice, close the account, then go on another platform, learn that one, um, play with it, close the account. And you know that gives you a couple of months there to, to kind of get the um, stuff down. That's one of the tricks to learning it. And some training platforms out there have uh, labs that you can download mm -hmm. and go through too. So there's a yeah. lot of content out there and we'll definitely be covering more of this for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I think that is our episode. So I would say the um, takeaway for, from this episode is understanding what DevOps is. And I would um, encourage everyone in the audience who doesn't already know about this um, kind of thing to just um, maybe not learn in depth yet, but just learn what 
you know, configuration management utilities there are out there in um, provisioning tools and things, not like learn them, learn them, but just know what they are, what the goal is they try to solve, how they fit into the ecosystem. Keep it simple at this point, just the high level overview of everything. And then as we go through other episodes down the line, we'll just go through some of these concepts in greater detail. Um, so that'll, that'll mean you're right where you need to be by the time we get to that. Yeah. And you'll quickly realize there are tens of these types of tools out there. Um, you won't have to know all of them, but no. uh, try to find some workflow and get to, get to know the tools in that workflow, and that will get you up to speed, because then the, the high-level concepts will apply from one to the to the other. Even if the syntax is not exactly the same, the, it should be minimally different. So right. what you learn on one will help you on the others. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because that's a very big question. Like, um, how do you, like, people ask me, how do you memorize all this? I don't. Yeah, I don't. I just don't. I write. I use the th the stuff that are the features that are important to what I'm doing, but um, some people make the mistake of like learning the cloud provider, um, like all like backwards and forwards every single feature. Um, unless you're trying to get certified, I don't really see mm -hmm. a reason to do that. For example, um, if you're not putting out multimedia content, then um, a CDN content delivery network is probably not something you'll need to learn. Um, AWS itself has like, what, 50, 60 different things, and you'll never learn them all. So just learn the things that are important to you um, in your use case and focus only on those things. Otherwise, it's overwhelming. You will never learn everything. Do not try this. Um, I, I you know, practice Linux stuff for a living and teach people everything. And even I don't have everything memorized. So Absolutely. that's just not going to happen. Yeah. And we live in a time where you don't need to have encyclopedical knowledge of all the aspects of computing. Um, yep. Basically, when we started doing IT some many years ago, even then it would be hard to grasp all the concepts and know everything. And right now it's impossible. Nobody will know right. all the concepts. Nobody will know all the tools because they keep appearing every new day. <laughs> it has new tools coming up. Don't even try to. You, you'll just get frustrated. But do, do try to understand the, the high-level concepts. Try to understand how containers work, how how they are different from virtual machines, how they are, yes. they're, I don't know, how they are just processes that are restricted in some way and not a full virtualized environment. Um, yep. That will help you on any container platform. When you realize that they're all basically the same, it's all just a question of asking Google what's the right syntax to do whatever you want to do on that particular yep. platform. And yeah, Google knows everything so that you don't have to. <laughs> to a fault. <laughs> but um, no, that's so true. And and just above all else, have fun. Like, like yeah. don't overwhelm yourself. Just have fun with it. Learn it. Just, just focus on the fun aspect and that'll uh, carry you through. And if you ever get frustrated, um, there's not a single person on this planet that I know of or have ever heard of that wasn't frustrated along the way. I was. Um, there's a lot of swear words I say off camera when things don't work that nobody's ever heard me say before. Uh, when I get frustrated, um, it happens to everybody. So, um, but we'll get there. And, and, you know, today's episode, we talk about DevOps as an overview. That's why. So that gets the conversation started. It gets people on the right track to start researching the individual components of it. And then we'll come right back to this in a future episode. We don't know which number yet, but we'll cover additional things that are within the umbrella. Absolutely. Awesome. So that was episode nine. Thank you guys for listening, watching, however you guys digest the content. We really appreciate that. And we'll be back again in a week with another episode. Yeah. Thanks, everybody.
Until the next one. See you later.